You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 277. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Heysen, heysen! Oh, I missed you guys! Oh, we miss you too, but you're back. That's what matters. Yeah, that's the main part. Right, yeah. I so wanted to be here last week, but I was skeptical. Skeptical, okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was busy being very skeptical with um, a couple of projects that we had. We had one skeptics in the pub online mm-hmm. uh, that I needed to prepare for and do. I, I And the British guys are doing a great job with that, but they are a full team with Uh, technical people and moderators and a presenter and and they have backups for everything i was doing this on my own with uh, just me doing all the technical stuff doing the presenting as well and we had a very 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 interesting talk uh, with Sei Okabai about uh, QAnon and the storming of the capitol hill uh, and it was very very much appreciated so that was Wednesday, I believe, but it took a little bit to prepare. And then during the weekend, it was the annual meeting of the Swedish skeptics. And we did it online, of course. But then again, afterwards, we had an online meeting with uh, the Enlighteners of the Year for 2020. Mm -hmm. But then I was actually in Stockholm and we had one of them, because there was two people sort of sharing the prize and one of them was in the room and there was a presenter having a discussion but we also had the other one with us online and we tried to and we we managed to get it all uh, in one live stream with uh, with windows and blah 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 and it was we had some technical difficulties it was much fun but a lot of work Mm -hmm. so that that's what i was doing last week if anybody wonders no But why did it fall all on you? Ah, uh, because I want to do it. <laughs> ah, I can't, okay. Uh, it I help. can't help myself. I want. <laughs> I want to have a finger in everything. And but the good thing is the annual meeting was actually there, and I was re-elected to be the president for another year. Yay! So here I am. <laughs> Very good. Congratulations! <laughs> congratulations! But you know that being a president doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do yourself everything yourself. So. Part of the job is that you you can delegate stuff. I need to learn how to delegate. Quite quite right. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm the same, but I'm learning. I'm currently learning how to do it. And uh, you may remember that uh, yeah. when I was preparing for the Flat Earth Award uh, ceremony, I had to skip an episode myself as well for the very same reason. Right. So right. I, I know exactly. A lot of work. But the, the good thing is that the yeah. work gets done and that's what matters. Yeah. And uh, a Well, there there is someone who has done a lot of skeptical work, but last week we heard the sad news from the Netherlands that uh, he passed away, and that was Cornelis Kees de Jager, one of the most prominent figures of the Dutch skeptical movement. Hmm. He lived an extraordinary life, and a very long one at that. He was an absolute giant in both his field of astronomy and the international skeptic movement as well. Coincidentally, by the way, his field of expertise was a type of highly luminous stars called supergiants. 
I don't think it's a real coincidence. <laughs> it was very fitting to his character. He was an amazing researcher, a science popularizer. He was the general secretary of the International Astronomical Union for several years. That is really something. A super giant indeed. A, a super giant, yes. But considering his contribution to the skeptical movement, he acted as first chairman of the Dutch organization Stichting Skepsis. And when EXO, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, which the two of us, Pontus and myself, are on the board of, when it was launched, when it came to life, he was the first chair until 2000 when Amardeo Sarma took over, mm. who's the current chairman of uh, GVUP, right? Yes. And <laughs> yeah. he's still on the board of uh, EXO as well as uh, treasurer. So Amardeo still plays a, a very important role in the, the international skeptic movement. And they started it together with uh, Kees de Jager. He was also a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. But I already mentioned that he lived a very long life. And that is indeed true because he turned 100 last month. Wow. <laughs> and uh, although he hasn't been active for years now, but, but up until around 10 years ago, he had still occasionally appeared at skeptical gatherings. Mm. And uh, recently, he lived in a care home apartment on an island very close to where he was born in uh, the Netherlands. But over the long years of his life, he has grown somewhat frail and was not in the best shape lately, which is, I think, totally understandable with a man close to 100. So it's not a surprise. And unfortunately, that meant that it was expected that sooner or later this happens. Uh, You remember this was the same thing with Randy. Yes. Yeah. He was over 90, 93. So that was unfortunately expected. But Jache was still admired and loved by so many and he was happily receiving greetings for his 100th birthday last month from all over the world and it was in the form of an online symposium that was organized by his colleagues uh, skeptical colleagues and astronomers so he was a real legend yeah but eventually everyone goes including mr yacher right so Rest in peace. Yes, right. yes, rest yeah. in and peace. thanks for all your contribution exactly. to the skeptic movement. Where you say everyone goes, I expect to live a little bit longer than I have done mm. so far. <laughs> because now I'm on Team Pfizer. I've been Pfizerized. Okay. So yesterday I managed to get my first uh, shot of the vaccine. Good. Which I have looked forward to for more than a year. Even before there was a vaccine. I so I can't wait until I get vaccinated. Yeah, I remember how optimistic we were. Yeah. Uh, that, right. that we wanted to get a hold of the, the first vaccines as soon <laughs> as possible. And we were talking about it. Right. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So happy for you. Yeah. So good. A lot of people my age hasn't gotten it yet Mm. in my region in the south of Sweden because they're doing a a good job, but they could do a better job of uh, organizing the schedules and making sure that everybody who wants to get vaccinated at least get a booking. So I was very fortunate last was last Monday. So it's uh, eight days ago. I logged on just by chance on one of the seven different sites you could log on to and they had just released a couple of new uh, time slots so I managed to get a booking and I woke up my wife said you have to get a booking too and she got it too (laughs) and then 10 minutes later we talked to another person and they said uh, 
I saw that you had gotten the, the a booking, so I jumped on it, and it was all over. They, they were well, all out of uh, time slots anyway. So you were really lucky. Wow. I, I was lucky. I was up early. So both of you have got that. Yeah, both uh, my wife and myself, we received the first uh, shot yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I'm still a bit sore in my arm. Yeah, it's going to last for a couple of days. I haven't had any other uh, symptoms, really, and it's already feeling a lot better. So I think I got away fairly uh, lightly if you will sounds good uh, based on my small sample of uh, information on the, on the, on the matter but yeah. it's all anecdotal evidence so it's not really strong but uh, it appears to me that Pfizer and Moderna doesn't really generate those very serious uh, vaccine reactions no it's mostly uh, the AstraZeneca and here in Hungary, where we use it, it's the Sputnik as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That comes with, with those relatively strong vaccine reactions, like temperatures and, and shiverings and all that stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, and also, I should say, I did also get my booking for the second shot, which will be, I think, 9th of July. Mm-hmm. So I have that already mm-hmm. So good. planned. Mm? Good. <laughs> good, good. That's really good to hear. Sounds awesome. Something that I was really happy to hear is that the EU now confirmed that uh, teenagers can be vaccinated against COVID. As well, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. About time. So 12 to 16 year olds can now also be vaccinated. And that's a good thing, especially with all the schools opening again. And uh, Yeah, but you know, the, from now on, the issue will not be whether they can be vaccinated, but what with <laughs> because yeah we saw it from pontus's example the problem is the lack of supply of vaccines so yes i don't know yes yeah I don't but know. yeah they're allowed now so that's the first first step and <laughs> then we'll see yeah it is. <laughs> but it is an interesting discussion that's going on in sweden at the moment because even though eu has approved it for teenagers as you say in sweden they are hesitating a little bit and there's a discussion now regarding We've always promoted vaccination for the individual's sake. But when it comes to uh, children or teenagers, we are talking about vaccinating them to protect others. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. it's very rare, I should say, that uh, teenagers have any serious symptoms. Yes. So you're not vaccinating them for their sake, you're vaccinating them for somebody else's. And that's a... I think you should do it, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's a different uh, proposition. True. Yeah, it's a it's a whole different approach to tackling the pandemic. But uh, well, the the ideal way would be to combine the two. I mean, go on with uh, vaccinating adults and everyone you can, as well as the children. But uh, hmm. with the serious lack of supply, it's going to stay just a wish for a long, long time. Yeah. But the, on the other hand, the supply is just a question of time. Yeah. You know, more and more vaccines will appear on the market. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows. A little bit different thing that I want to mention before we before we move on. One of our listeners, Carlos from Portugal, got in touch. Uh, it's a funny story, actually. He saw one of my tweets about cryptocurrency. And uh, my problem was that I, I did not understand it. And, and I feel something very strong against cryptocurrency. So he felt the need to educate me. And he was kind enough to send us a bit of an explanation with links and all that. Very interesting stuff and really appreciate it. I think it's it's amazing. And he casually mentioned how he was looking forward to the moment when we would mention someone uh, from Portugal and he could send us a file with the correct pronunciation of the name. <laughs> and 
what happened last week. On our last episode, we mentioned a Portuguese doctor who's currently in legal trouble for standing up for science and whose name really gave me a hard time trying to pronounce it. And I'm not going to give it a shot now. <laughs> <laughs> Wise choice. <laughs> Instead, since Carlos took on the opportunity and sent us the correct pronunciation, let's listen to it as he pronounces it. João Júlio Cerqueira. So that's how you say it. And I'm not going to try. <laughs> again, I, d I did make an attempt last week. Not again. But thanks a lot, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Now, Portuguese is difficult. It is. Yeah. It is. It's beautiful, though. Uh, very nice to listen to. Yes, yes. By the way, it looks like after almost a year since I was uh, last outside of Hungary, I'll be doing my first tour as a tour guide very soon Ooh, that's cool taking a group of hungarian tourists to madeira nice Ooh. so talking about the language portuguese language that i really like the sound of so there might not be too many among our listeners from from that part of the world but uh if anyone knows any skeptics on that gorgeous island i would be very happy to try and meet up with them obviously taking all the measures to avoid unnecessary risks of anyone getting infected with covid I even hope to get my second vaccine shot by by then. And before getting on the plane, I'll have to get a PCR test as well, along with all the others that I'll be traveling with. So I will probably be relatively safe to be around. But I would I would appreciate uh, any hints as to whom to contact on Madeira. There have to be skeptics on Madeira. So uh... <laughs> yeah, don't hide. Anyhow, <laughs> going back to Carlos and the Portuguese doctor's name. Thanks a lot, Carlos. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget listeners, that we're always happy to get your recordings of the names that we somehow end up butchering on our shows. Uh, <laughs> corrections coming, please. <laughs> yeah, and something we're also happy about is giving good people good prices. And that's happening with the John Maddox Prize because nominations uh, are now open until uh, the 14th of June. And um, as we know, the John Maddox Prize is an initiative from Sense About Science and mm -hmm. the scientific journal Nature and has been awarded since 2012 to deserving mm -hmm. winners. So, mm -hmm. yeah, why don't you, dear listeners, just send in some nominations? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's been open for a while and and uh, we've, we've already mentioned it, I think, but the time is almost up. So those who want to nominate someone and why it's important that we mentioned it is because the portuguese doctor the name of whom has been shown to you by carlos earlier yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh i think he would be worthy of such a prize because he's been fighting for science and uh critical thinking and has got some pretty strong counterforces in his face so i think it would be a, a worthy nominee so why why don't you guys go on and nominate him? Yeah, and the link will be in the show notes, of course. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, so, but, oh my God, <laughs> we've got a long episode ahead of us. So let's see what we can learn about the relevance of this week in skepticism first. Yeah, so this week in skepticism, we're talking about the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh, juicy. <laughs> <laughs> and he was born on June the 2nd, 1740. And his official name uh, was Donation Donation Alphonse Francois. Mm, okay. <laughs> please, French listeners, please send in how to pronounce him. <laughs> yeah, also, also called the Marquis de Sade. 
And he was a French nobleman, politician, and philosopher, but he's most famous for his works on sexuality. He wrote, he wrote a lot of things. He combined philosophical discourse with pornography, which was very Ooh. interesting for, for back then. And the word sadism and uh, sadist, they are actually derived from um, his name. Mm. The thing is, he mentally explored sexual deviations, like um, you think it, you name it, so to say. And he also wanted free public brothels to prevent crimes that are motivated by lust. So something that wouldn't go down well nowadays, I think. But yeah. Hmm. And he died on 2nd of December 1814 and influenced people like Sigmund Freud, Simone de Beauvoir, um, Charles Baudelaire, Jim Morrison, Michel Foucault, Pete Doherty. And the interesting thing is that many people think um, sadism is automatically bad, like that sadists are always torturing um, poor people. But there are two types and there's the sadist that wants consent. That, for example, that's, that's something you will see in, in BDSM between adults. And it looks like the Marquis de Sade was of this category because um, he did things that were against like the church doctrine back then, but usually paid his partners to do that. So so you obviously you can't really diagnose it and say, yeah, you're a psychopath or you did that with consent um, because... Yeah, he, he lived several centuries, but it looks like he went he belonged to this category. Mm -hmm. And there's also obviously the other category, and that is the dangerous uh, sadist that doesn't care if the sexual partner, in air quotes, so to say, consents to it or not. They are dangerous, and they are the ones that abduct people and everything. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, he was a very interesting person, but better than his reputation. <laughs> he also, for example, hated the church, but that um, seems to be because he had an uncle who was working for the church, but who had like sexual orgies himself. So <laughs> he, he could see the bigotry and thus just lost all illusions that he had for church. Yeah, so to put it in a nutshell, the Marquis de Sade has a lot of myths around him and he is an interesting person but he's really not as bad <laughs> as you might think <laughs> okay i just want to say that one one, one thing that you said before that uh, about consent and paying people mm -hmm. just because you get paid i don't necessarily think that that means that you give your consent it, it's uh, <laughs> yes of uh, course. you know you can pay people to let them be raped and and that's not okay <laughs> no I no but that way that apparently it seems like he hired prostitutes and told them before what he wanted to do and then gave her her or him or who i don't know the money and they agreed beforehand and then yeah commenced <laughs> so that's what it looks like obviously i didn't study the subject <laughs> so mm. i can't put my my foot down and say it is like it is but i know somebody who knows a lot of, about the marquis de Sade, and um, that is lydia benecke who we maybe will have on the show <laughs> at some point of time <laughs> yeah we've been yeah, talking about that for a while so hopefully yeah yeah, yeah. we've been trying to achieve that <laughs> yeah so when she's finally on the show we will just ask her <laughs> okay that's a good idea. But the reputation that he has way exceeds what he actually did. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah, for example, um, the thing is like, 
Um, he did, for example, things where his sexual partner, they did something with the Holy Cross or so. Mm -hmm. And t nowadays we would say like, yeah, whatever, just like lick the cross, whatever. <laughs> and But back then, this was so such a sin yeah. that he would just get like a reputation that he would always be like the devil, <laughs> devil on earth <laughs> or so. Okay. And nowadays we would say, yeah, whatever. But what we also have to say is, he thought about a lot of very weird things <laughs> in his in his literature work, but he didn't do it. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because if you have like the dangerous variant of, of a sadist, they will do it. Like they will fascinate about it and they will do it <laughs> because they don't care how, how their victims feel. Yeah. And, and he didn't do it. He wrote it down. He thought about it. He didn't do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or not all of it. Not all of it. Okay. <laughs> and he was a contemporary of... Casanova, <laughs> wasn't he? Do you know if they knew each other or? Good question. Is Casanova Italian? Sorry, I'm very ignorant. Yeah, 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 yeah. He he was Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so maybe like France and Italy is not that far away from each other. So yeah, he was from Venice, but I believe he did spend a lot of time in Paris. Casanova. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just occurred to me that they might have shared some of their social lives. <laughs> More research is needed, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, definitely. Well, I wonder if it, it was if it's worth doing all that research, but yeah, it's it's interesting and it's always always interesting to learn how many different kinds of misconceptions can surround a person. Yes. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. And uh yeah, that means that we're moving on to the next phase when Pontus is probably finally going to poke the Pope. Yes, finally. So it's been a few weeks, quite a few weeks, I believe. I, I don't know how many, three, maybe. So now, of course, suddenly everything happens at once. So I'm afraid this will be on the longer side. I hope, I hope everybody agrees with that. And just a few hours ago, when we make this recording, Francis came out with a total update of book six of the Code of Canon Law. Uh, and of course, I had not, not heard of specifically about that before, but it is part of the legal system or the, the laws uh, from the Vatican and from, from the Catholic Church. And obviously, I'm not a lawyer. And anyway, I haven't had time to really look into it. But from the reporting that I've seen online today in a few hours, it contains um, a brand new penal system. And some of the change is about a handful of new crimes that have been defined and making punishment for offenses an obligation rather than a suggestion. So that last part is very important because before, if a bishop could, quote-unquote, uh, punish a, a sex abuser, for instance... It now specifically says, quote, that person is to be punished with a deprivation of office and with other just penalties, uh, not excluding, where the case calls for it, dismissal from the clerical state, end quote, which is legalese, I guess. But it means that before a bishop could, say, decide whether to punish a sex abuser, but now they say he should do it. And uh, that would include removing somebody from office if they have done something really bad, which has been known to happen, understatement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, but I, I think we will, uh, 
as this is brand new, we will come back to this law change in the future. Instead, I have a few other things to say and say what you will about Francis, but he's not your ordinary pope. There was a Brazilian priest that approached him last week after a general audience in the Vatican, and he was asking the Pope for his blessing. And uh, Francis understood that this priest was uh, Brazilian. So without hesitation, Frankie just shook his head seriously and said in Italian, there is no salvation for you, end quote. And then, then he leaned over and said this, uh, and you're the Italian speaker, Andros. Can you translate this maybe? Uh, he said... Tropa cachaça, niente preghiera. What would you say that means? Uh, cachaça is... Uh, what is it? Cachaça is actually not Italian. It's a Brazilian uh, spirit, sugarcane spirit. Ah, okay. so it's like kind of a rum. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, tropa cachaça, niente preghiera. It means that uh, too much drink and no prayers. Or no prayer, yeah. Exactly. So no salvation for you. <laughs> There's too much drinking and... Too... No prayer. <laughs> and I, you know... It it can sound very funny in a way, but uh, the people in Brazil were not happy, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, and I really understand that, actually, because even if you think it sounds funny, if you are a believer and then you believe that you are in constant danger of internal damnation, for reals, it's not something, you know, we can laugh about this, but if you really believe it, it's real... And you also believe that the Pope speaks for God and that God speaks through him. And then to hear the Pope say very straight-faced, and I have seen the video, he doesn't look like he's joking. He says it directly to you, there is no salvation for you. I would be terrified. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> Frankie probably gave this poor priest his worst nightmare ever. I mean, I would he could give anybody PTSD. And then, of course, he, he followed it up with a smile and clearly indicated that it was a joke. But I think it was a pretty cruel joke, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, if you're a believer, then of, of course. Like, I think for us, we would be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but if you believe it... Yes, yeah. all right. Yeah, but still, if, if, it's, if it's a joke and if it was um, delivered as a joke, it's probably not that bad. I mean, imagine that with an angry face. Yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> like a seriously angry face. No, no salvation for you. You drink too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but th that came afterwards. The first thing he said with a perfectly straight face is, "There is no salvation for you." Ah, and he looked okay. him in the eyes. All right, and and you know, it's like if you if you were working on on Amaz at Amazon. Mm -hmm. And Bezos came up to say to you, "You are fired." No, <laughs> that's not a joke. It's not. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for a second or two, you are terrified. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I when, with Bezos, it's different because even if he was joking, I think it would, it would sound creepy. <laughs> that's a creepy guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but that's not a, no excuse for Francis. He doesn't have to be as creepy. Yes, that's right. Anyway, Francis tried to make a joke. Okay, fine. But being the Pope is not always fun. I realize that. And, and perhaps he needed to ventilate a bit. He's actually facing, Frankie is, uh, three different challenges at the moment, uh, which makes his life not so fun, I guess. The first one is that local staff in the Vatican is in rebellion mode. We've mentioned before here that, that Frankie cut the salaries for everybody, including the cardinals, to try to fight the huge financial deficit in the Vatican. Uh, cardinals is one thing, but the lay people working at the Vatican were not very amused by this, and they are now officially protesting and have appointed 
a formal uh, committee to negotiate with the Pope. And they have a good argument, actually. And they say that if Francis really want to save money, don't save money on, on the people, you know, polishing the stones and making sure that everything works at the Vatican, trimming the hedges or whatever they are doing there. Try to cut down then instead on the expenses on the number of international consultants and specialists that each year charges enormous fees to the Vatican on, on this, that, and the other. So so that's their argument. So they have a good point. Or yeah. instead of cutting the allowances of um, the cardinals by 10%, if I remember correctly, right, just cut it completely. I mean, <laughs> take it all away. Yeah, exactly. So that's the first thing that bothers uh, Frankie at the moment. Secondly, Germany, uh, Annika, is giving him a headache. There's the issue of the Catholic priests in, in Germany rebelling against the decree about not blessing same-sex couples. And also other things that are ongoing discussions that they have in the so-called synodal path in Germany. That's the, the bishops' meetings that are going on for two years. They will actually finish towards the end of this year, so we'll see what they come up with. But there they're discussing things like marriages for priests and other challenging ideas, and he needs to handle that somehow. And also in Germany, there's the Archdiocese of Cologne. Hello again, uh, Annika. Wee, that's very close to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because the Archdiocese of Cologne has allegedly mishandled abuse cases so much that Francis last Friday ordered an official investigation involving a cardinal, Rainer Maria Völki, and also other high-ranking German bishops uh, like the Archbishop of Hamburg, uh, Stefan Hesse. So that's the second thing. The third thing that Francis is worried about at the moment is that he seems... It looks like he feels that he needs to openly defy former Pope Benedict, which is also a German, by the way. So Benedict XVI's grand legacy was a document or an apostolic letter from uh, 2007, and it's called Summorum Pontificum, and it has nothing to do with Pontus. <laughs> Pontificum, it's just a coincidence. Pontifice is a priest. Yes. And the pontiff is the pope, right? Pontifex Maximus is the, is the pope, the supreme priest. That's right. But anyway, in this document, Summorum Pontificum, Benedict stressed the importance of sticking to the traditional way of worshipping. So back to Latin, back to the old-fashioned way of, of worshipping. <laughs> and Francis is reportedly not very happy with that. He would like to modernize things instead. The problem is that it would be impossible for him to do that and modernize things and still maintain the official line, which is that the two popes are in perfect harmony with each other, which is the image that the Vatican wants to convey. So not so fun to be the pope these days. Lots of difficult decisions and perhaps he should relax a bit instead and try some of that Brazilian cachaça <laughs> instead of frightening uh, poor priests after the, the audience there. <laughs> then very briefly mention one thing before we go. Totally different thing. When Mother Teresa was canonized and, and made a saint in 2016, we pointed out that she was far from saintly herself and actually very cruel in the name of religion. And if anybody wants to know more about her and, and that aspect of things, there is a new podcast that I would 
recommend called The Turning, The Sisters Who Left. And we will link to that in the show notes. And this podcast features two defectors from uh, Mother Teresa's cult called Missionaries of Charity. And the word cult is not mine, but theirs. So they are telling about their stories and how difficult it was to get out of what they describe as something very cult-like back then when when, uh, Mother Teresa was still alive. So it's been said before, and it's still true, Mother Teresa was not exactly a saint, Mm. whatever you say. And um, all of her terrible and cruel practices were actually known at the point when Francis canonized her. So remember that before you defend him as the liberal, the nice pope yeah. that he wants to be be known as. Yeah, it's. I think both of them, both uh, Pope Francis and Mother Teresa, are characters that are similarly misrepresented in the public eye to how Marquis de Sade is, yeah. as uh, Annika enlightened all of us. Right. So, yeah, it's it's ridiculous how the public sees Mother Teresa as this saintly person and the same thing with the Pope. And that's just being misled by all the myths and all the stories right. and not knowing the details, the deeper context of, of how they operate or operated. Oh, wow. Moving on to the news, starting with COVID. Well, there are many developments around the science of the SARS-CoV-2, right? Yeah. You might have heard that a universal coronavirus vaccine might be possible to achieve very soon. And it tries to focus on the part of the spike protein that is common in all coronaviruses. But the results are still preliminary. The highest level of the research has been reached with monkeys so far. So it's probably not going to be applicable uh, in this current situation of the pandemic anytime soon. But also... German researchers at the Goethe University in Frankfurt seem to have worked out methods to improve the vaccines that are known to cause an extremely rare case of blood clotting, like uh, AstraZeneca and the Janssen vaccine. So it's interesting. There has been published uh, material on this, uh, going through the different details of what might be causing these blood clottings and how the vaccines can be altered in order to avoid that. And that is fascinating stuff. And especially if you think about the time frame that has emerged out of the recognition of the problem itself. So it's it's amazing how science works these days, how fast and how effectively it does its job. So it's something to keep an eye out for because it's very promising. But... I'm pretty sure that the elephant in the room when it comes to COVID and the COVID-related news as of late is really the question that has kept a lot of people up at night since the onset of this pandemic. And that is, where is SARS-CoV-2 coming from? Did it come from a lab in Wuhan? Or is it of natural origins? Well, (laughs) the short version of this story is that the jury is still out on that one. And why it's interesting is because at the, the beginning the scientific community was very quick 
in communicating the arguments in favor of a natural origin. And uh, we try to avoid this, this kind of communication that allowed for a lab origin for the virus. And th th there are arguments for and against this uh, lab origin as well. But it has been, this argument has been uh, renewed as of late. Uh, so much so that uh, now Facebook lifted the ban on posts claiming COVID-19 was man-made. Because they implemented a ban on those posts not too long ago, actually. And now they li they've lifted that ban because the jury is still out. But does that mean that the conspiracy theorists have all been right, who were saying that it was released from a Wuhan lab? No. Because the problem is that this is how we need to assess the situation currently, that the WHO could could not have access at, at the beginning to details and to sites where they should have conducted experiments and investigations as to whether it was originating from a lab. And ever since then, the same problem came up time and again. And because of this, we still don't know. So it should not be claimed that, oh, I've told you, we've told you that it was all coming from the lab and it was released on purpose. So first of all, we don't know. We don't have enough evidence to state that it was coming from a lab. And even if it was, it could have been an accident. It could have been an absolutely accidental release of a vaccine that had been researched at that moment. But um, the only connection that could be made, clear connection, was that before the re onset of the pandemic, they had been conducting experiments with coronaviruses. But that's not even surprising because that is an area where coronaviruses are very frequently appearing and those coronaviruses appear in bats most of them and that is what supports the idea that it was of natural origin that the coronaviruses that appear in bats have very similar genetic structure to this current thing so basically it's very likely that it naturally occurred in wuhan but the possibility of it having been released from a lab, either on purpose or by accident, cannot be excluded. Yeah. And that is how you want to approach this. Right. It's not like if you cannot exclude that, that it means that it was released and it's it's a conspiracy, the, the whole thing. Yeah. And this is another thing that annoys me quite a lot. Even if it turns out that it was released on purpose, just say hypothetically, that doesn't mean that the people who cried that last year were right. Exactly. Because they were still doing it out of pure speculation. They had no evidence. Completely in the dark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you just speculate and you happen to be right, that doesn't mean you're clever. That just means you're lucky. Yeah. Yes. So lucky. Yeah. In German, you would say, auch ein blindes Huhn findet einen Korn. Of course you would. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it means a blind chicken might also find uh, some grains. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. Yes, that's right. We have the same same yeah. saying. We too. Uh, mm -hmm. In Hungarian. <laughs> it's an exact trans translation of that. Yeah. How come when you say it, it's just a fifth of the length of <laughs> when you say it in German? Because German is just long. In all regards. <laughs> yeah, this is what we discussed last week with Hanika. Oh no, we're going down the language rabbit hole again. Yeah. Oh no, we shouldn't, we Please shouldn't. Not. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we don't know, we want to know, but there is another thing about this. Mm. Even if it was released from a lab, 
it doesn't change the fact that it caused a global pandemic and the way to tackle it is that we have to use vaccinations and we have to use the vaccines that have been developed. So uh, obviously, if it was a lab release and it was intentional, that brings up all kinds of different questions. But let's wait for the results of these investigations first before we jump into more conclusions. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so moving on to other news. All right. So sticking a little bit on with the uh, COVID uh, theme, mm-hmm. we call that's very important, I guess. It is indeed. There is, or was rather unknown at this moment, <laughs> a communication agency called, and I don't know how to pronounce this. It's uh, spelled F A Z Z E. So Fatze <laughs> or Faz or, or, or I don't know. So I, I'm going to call it Fatze because it signifies the spelling a little bit better than anything else. <laughs> so this communication agency, Fatze, they have uh, contacted several French YouTubers lately and at least one German journalist and a YouTuber with an offer to pay heavily if they discredit the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine on their uh, social media channels. And this agency said that they were operating on behalf of a client that wanted to stay anonymous. (laughs) Wonder why. So this is terrible news. Not surprising, but it's terrible. People are being offered a lot of money to spread misinformation and and lies about uh, vaccines. So who who could be behind this campaign? Well, this FATSE organization or agency they presented themselves as a british communication agency however the documentation of such an agency is uh, rather poor or almost non-existent it can't be found in the uk business registers Uh, but then in 2018 already they were in sort of around because then they presented themselves as registered in the Virgin Islands. They have a website, or rather they had a website, because it mysteriously went offline on 25th of May. And on that, because the internet never goes away, so you can always retrieve things, they indicated that they had an office at a London address, but uh, there was no sign on the door of that uh, London address that Fatsa was uh, there. And um, then there was another reference in one of the emails that was sent to these YouTubers and influencers asking them to to discredit uh, Pfizer. That was a reference to a profile on the Russian social media VK. However, that profile has now been deleted from VK. You see a pattern here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also been found that several LinkedIn accounts with people posing as FATSE employees, those uh, accounts have suddenly disappeared. And that includes the one of the CEO. And again, nothing really uh, disappears from the internet. So it's clear that this CEO claimed that there was a Moscow address behind the headquarters of the company, not a UK one. So there it is. I mean, I don't think we can expect any clearer indication that Russia is actively trying to undermine the confidence in the COVID vaccines. I actually am a bit surprised that they are so sloppy that you could 
easily find this on the internet just by going to the Wayback Machines and, and, and things like that. Yeah, so there we go. But this is coming because these YouTubers decided to raise the alarm and be they didn't take the money mm -hmm. and do it instead they went public and said this is what we've been approached to do it's terrible we don't know how much misinformation is being spread by other youtubers who weren't that honest and who actually took the money and did spread misinformation mm -hmm. yeah or other people like other on other platforms i mean yeah 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 wow like there's still facebook there's still instagram telegram you know whatever right and vk the russian <laughs> social media vk vk and it's very big it's very big vk is is amazingly popular in russia mm. it's mu much bigger than facebook over there mm. Mm. all right we've seen now that uh, monetization of misinformation is dangerous and should be avoided, of course, right? Mm -hmm. This is exactly what the European Commission's Code of Practice was all about back in uh, 2018. That was signed uh, by almost all major social media platforms and IT giants, including Facebook, Google, Twitter, Mozilla, Microsoft, and even TikTok. But recently, the Commission has called for a strengthening of this Code of Practice. Why? <laughs> partly because the last year or so has shown that we are in very deep trouble <laughs> and in part it was because the original guidelines seem to have failed to deliver the expected results for the most part probably because they were expected to self-regulate according to the previous code mm. right how would you expect that from these tech giants right yeah we shouldn't have expected that to work in the first place according to eu officials the new code should be a core regulatory instrument that is designed by all the signatories as a collaborative effort. And uh, the first draft should be presented to the Commission in the autumn of this year. So no regulations should be expected to change before mid-next year, right? And with that, I'm, I think I'm being very generous because we know how slow these actions can be in the European Union. Yeah. But one of the reasons cited as a drive to do this is the massive anti-vaccination campaigns all across the continent. Something that fact-checkers have so far failed to encounter effectively. Because it's not enough to fact-check. Because if, if no one cares that the fact-check came out negative and, and showing that it's all bullshit, it's not enough in itself. So what would this new initiative entail? Well, first of all, companies should be tougher on disinformation and the algorithms that help the spreading of falsehoods should be identified and altered if necessary. That's a big task. But the other thing is that demonetization and removal of disinformation campaigns should also be part of this effort. Vice President of the European Commission, uh, Vera Jourova, emphasized that this does not serve the purpose of policing thoughts and opinions. Heck, she also cited her experience from back when the country was part of the Czechoslovakia and the Soviet system of censorship was in place. So no, opinions are to be handled as such, but facts have to be checked and enforced. And it's often said by skeptics that everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not to their own facts. Facts are facts and should be handled as such, right? Right. So how do they tend to achieve this? How can the commission make these tech giants comply with all the new rules? Well, with the one thing that they care about, money. The whole thing will be set into motion alongside the new European Digital Services Act, 
that allows companies to be fined up to 6% of their annual revenue if they fail to act and remove illegal content where harm can be proven. That's a big thing. If that goes through, that means that they have to comply. They will be forced to comply. But what did it comply with? Well, apparently it's going to be up to them. So it might end up working. But what do I mean by it's being up to them? The act should be relevant to all social media platforms, regardless of whether they are signatory of the code or not. So they might just choose to take part in it, in the negotiations, in sketching it all up and writing it up and finding out what the best course of action would be to tackle the problem, right? And for that, they have to work with others, the other media giants. So one thing is for sure, this needs to be taken care of. And I'm pretty sure that if the regulations allow the European Commission to find these giants properly, they will do the right thing. Not without that. I'm pretty sure that if they're not forced to do such things, it's not in their interest to try to get rid of a lot of clicks because that's what they're after. No, they're in the business of making money. So uh, Exactly, yeah. exactly. So money is what they can be persuaded with. So uh, this has to be taken care of the sooner the better. It's already years too late, I think. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there are things that we also should take action about <laughs> mm -hmm. and might already be too late. Who knows? <laughs> mm -hmm. But there's something that um, a new study found out or could, like, pro could prove again. Um, because apparently um, those who don't want to take action can't be persuaded and specifically i'm talking about climate skeptics so not <laughs> european skeptics but climate skeptics it's a very different thing <laughs> and they don't seem to be easily persuaded by um available evidence so that's why they should not be called skeptics yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> they should be called the deniers yeah deniers yeah so um the thesis was or like the claim was that climate skeptics are deniers who haven't been persuaded by the existing evidence of climate change mm -hmm. won't change their minds uh, for many years and there was a quantitative study by the university of oregon an environmental economy uh, field there and yes oregon is not europe <laughs> but um i just decided because climate change is an international thing that it also um, refers to us as as europeans so they they wanted to know how much evidence would it take to persuade them. And that really depends on the degree of the climate denialism, <laughs> because there are two types. Um, the one type thinks there might be a slight change in, the, in temperature and there might be like a little bit of a climate change, but not as bad as it actually is. And the second type is that they say that the change is not existent. So they really deny it 100%. And they got shown um, climate data of 1866 to 2005 and projections into the future. And surprisingly, <laughs> the most, uh, more denying or more denialist people uh, didn't get persuaded at all and won't get persuaded in the future, like for years to come. The thing was that uh, the moderate deniers were highly likely to change. So that's that's good. But... The problem is that many of the climate deniers also regard um, mainstream sources of science as untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. So the problem is that you can pretty much tell them whatever you want, 
there are people you just can't convince and that's what the study proved again uh -huh. they don't know completely if it's if they are like just sure of their own sources or if they're just very mistrustful of the scientific sources or a combination but it just sums up there are people we just can't reach right so so i think there's this classical situation there's three steps really mm. the first is no the globe is not warming at all so you deny that and then you put push them and you push them and they say well maybe it is warming but it's not our fault yeah yeah and then if you push them and push them again they say well maybe it is our fault but it's too late to do anything about it mm -hmm. yeah true. so so <laughs> no matter how you reach them the conclusion is we shouldn't do anything Because that's what they've decided from the beginning. Yeah, it's a bit of a re retreating tendency. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what they still cling to is their denial yeah. of some sort. Yeah. So Now, It reminds me of what what I was told by my mother when I was young. And, and that's a story from way back when. It's, it's the, the classical excuse. First of all, it wasn't me. Second of all, I didn't mean to. <laughs> and third of all, I won't do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> That's the kind of reasoning you're, yes. you're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, but you're supposed to g grow out of this phase of, of, of your yes, denial. Yes, and I think I did. Yeah, I okay. think I did. Did That's you just good. call Some climate deniers toddlers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's a good word. Mantle toddlers. Yes, instead of skeptics <laughs> or deniers, toddlers. they're toddlers. <laughs> yes. The climate toddlers. All right. <laughs> Okay. There we go. This is a phrase coined by Annika. It's going to be <laughs> trademarked now. I think that's the name of this episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. As we've already mentioned on several occasions, the issue of global climate change is a tough one, right? But let's talk about a different aspect of it. It's, it's hard to make accurate predictions. And there are hundreds of different models showing different paces of the warming itself. But we all want to see the future and what it brings uh, in terms of uh, climate change. And I have to say that most of those climate models agree that keeping the increase of global average annual temperatures within 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050 compared to pre-industrial levels will prove extremely difficult, if not impossible. And we've already mentioned that on several occasions. And yet, that was what the Paris Agreement aimed for almost six years ago. And that is mind-blowing if you think of how little we've achieved since the Paris Agreement. Actually, the Paris Agreement was the thing when we started this podcast almost six years ago, five and a half years ago. Anyhow, we're still only talking about changing our carbon dioxide emissions drastically, but it's not happening really. Something that's often referred to as hitting the brakes. It's not happening. The, the, the wheels are still turning, despite the topic being constantly on the table. Climate activists are not willing to shut up about it, and, and rightly so. But the pandemic hasn't been kind to us either in that regard. And as the databases and the data sets that experts work with are being refined and improved, the climate models are changing as well, and not showing better results than previously did. On the contrary, the latest joint announced by the, by the World Meteorological Organization and Britain's Met Office, claims that there is a 40% chance that the famous 1.5 degree mark will be breached within the next five years or so. When it comes to trends of warming, we have to distinguish that. It still doesn't mean we've surpassed the increase level that's outlined as acceptable by the Paris Accord, because there can be fluctuations still and the trend doesn't necessarily get to the same level at the same time. But we're getting close. And that shows the possibility of that happening, that, that breach happening, it still shows that we are getting 
very, very close to that uh, happening in the, with the trend as well. It's disturbing, though, that even some climate scientists who spoke out in the matter have been going on about how it's not necessarily that much of a cause for panic. So we're still picking on nuanced details, like how we distinguish between a breach and the trend line getting there. You remember the news item about Air France and how long the travel on a train has to be in order for the same distance to be banned for domestic flights in the country? Mm -hmm. That the original proposal was for four hours on a train, but they decreased it to 2.5 hours. So this is the level of pickiness that surrounds this whole us trying to tackle the global warming issue. And all this, while there's a growing amount of evidence that the warming fucks us all up, a new study in the journal Nature that makes an effort to assess the number of lives lost due to extreme heat that can be linked to climate change. And their results show that since 1991, 37% of the deaths that were caused by extreme heat can be attributed to climate change. That's a lot. That's more than one third of those heat-related deaths caused by climate change or can be linked to climate change. It's, it's shocking. But some experts even argue that this number might be a serious underestimate. I'm not going to go into all the details of how heat can play a serious role in developing health issues or even dying, but in the last couple of years, there has been ample evidence emerging that the link is clear. So it's about time we took action and not stick with the details of whether it's 2.5 hours or 4 hours or whether it's the trend line that reaches that 1.5 degrees or there is one year that is a fluctuation that goes above 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. No, it's happening. We need to act now. And we need our politicians to take action as well. <sighs> right. It's not a very positive note to, to finish finish the news segment on. So, so Pontus, can you cheer us up by, by pointing fingers at no. someone who's been really wrong or something? <laughs> I can point fingers. I don't know if it will cheer you up. But... Okay, let's give it a shot. All right, and this one comes to us from listener Carlos. Thank you very much. Uh, and you know what's a really wrong idea? What? That is when COVID restrictions uh, stops a big football final between two UK teams, because you don't want uh, all the spectators to become ill, of course. And instead of playing in front of no audience at all, or maybe not playing at all, you decide to fly all the stupid hooligans from England to Portugal. <laughs> All 16,500 of them so that they can infect each other there instead. And this happened uh, last weekend when the Champions League final was held on the 29th of May between Manchester City and Chelsea. And of course, after the fact, the media was full of videos of uh, supporters on the street fighting each other, fighting the local police. They didn't carry any masks, no social distancing in sight, and chanting at the top of their lungs, making sure that if one person <laughs> is infected, everybody should get infected. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So now you, you may think, well, UK has come pretty far with vaccinations compared to many other countries. But just over a third of all adults in the UK were fully vaccinated as of 27th of May when these people likely got on the plane. Which means there's a real big fat chance that lots of these supporters were carrying the virus. 
So um, send them to Portugal instead and let them infect each other there. <laughs> That's not a good idea. Not at all. So for all of this, UEFA and the local authorities as well in the city of Porto in Portugal that allowed this to happen, they together get today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And to Carlos as well. And uh, that concludes our show. Ooh. Actually, but obviously, we cannot leave without a quote. Yes. <laughs> and today's quote comes from a uh, Russian-born science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov. Ooh, one of my favorites. Yeah, and he did know a lot about science itself and probably why he was such a good science fiction writer as well. But it ha probably had a lot to do with him being a biochemistry professor as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what he said was, Science doesn't purvey absolute truth. Science is a mechanism. It's a way of trying to improve your knowledge of nature. It's a system for testing your thoughts against the universe and seeing whether they match. And this works not just for the ordinary aspects of science, but for all of life. I should think people would want to know what they know is truly what the universe is like, or at least as close as they can get to it. Here, here. Yes, very smart. <laughs> ah. <laughs> very good, very good. Extremely productive, uh, Isaac Asimov was. He wrote, yeah. Uh, he, he did write a lot of fiction but he also wrote a lot of uh, science uh, books as well I, I i think there are many hundreds or at least over a hundred of, of books and other things that he yeah. produced in his life and he started a he had also the a science fiction magazine as well mm -hmm. called <laughs> i think it was called asimov's science fiction or something like that it was going on for a couple of mm -hmm. decades mm -hmm. and he was very involved in that as well very mm -hmm. good yeah. <laughs> so this is like a, a scientist ars poetica that uh, this quote, and I really love this, and uh, that should be on the walls of everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those couple of sentences. Okay. Uh, but this really concludes our show, and I'd like to thank both of you, Anika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> uh, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so, and until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe See ya, Stock. Hello. <laughs> Come closer to the mic. Hey, sir. Hey, sir. Sorry. <laughs>
Sorry. Should we do yeah. it again? Maybe just from Fishy Say hello I'm again. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to be a long night. That's not what he said, I'm sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs>